Good, good morning, Snowden Baptist Church. Would you bow with me as we pray once again, uh, just prior to opening God's word. Father, we are a people gathered here who trust you and trust your word as authoritative over our lives, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, as necessary for our walk with you in this world. Lord, today we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and wield your word. Father, we know that this is a living and active word that has been breathed out by you, that is able to cut right to the heart of people, Lord, to convict of sin, to bring them to your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that perhaps a new vision of the glory of the Son of God would be afforded today, Lord, as we look at various passages in the Old Testament. We pray in Jesus' name for your help now. Amen. Well, once again, the plan for the four Sundays of Advent in the preaching time is to see how the Old Testament not only predicted the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but also described and identified him. Now, we do plan to return to our study in First Peter come January, January but for Advent, uh, we're in the Old Testament finding Jesus here. Last week, we took a whirlwind tour through the book of Genesis and its portrayal of the Messiah. Uh, this morning, the rather ambitious plan is to venture through six or seven Old Testament books as we attempt to discern the picture of the Messiah that's given to us in Exodus through Ruth. So I hope you've come prepared today to do a little work with me. Now last Sunday we traced the lineage of Eve through the book of Genesis, or perhaps better stated, we traced those descendants of the woman Eve who were chosen by God, uh, that lineage that went from Eve to Seth, to Noah and Shem, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and finally Judah. This is the lineage, of course, that would eventually produce our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And at the end of Genesis, that particular seed of the woman lineage ends up in Egypt because of a famine. And the book of Exodus begins with Jacob's line there in the nation of Egypt. That family or that lineage would spend 430 years in Egypt, according to Exodus 12, verse 40, after which they were released from their slavery to Pharaoh in a very dramatic way by the mighty hand of Yahweh, God of Israel. Fast forward to the book of Numbers where we see that very generation of the exodus from Egypt wandering in the desert 40 years before a new generation of Jacob's descendants then arose. In Numbers, the people of Israel go from Mount Sinai, they travel around quite a bit, from Mount Sinai at the beginning of the book, then to a region called Paran, and then finally to the plains of Moab, where they sit poised at last to enter the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
It's at Numbers 22 and verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Numbers 22 and verse 1, where Israel arrives at the plains of Moab. And it's also at Numbers 22, 1, where a rather lengthy narrative starts, a narrative in Numbers that is called the Book of Balaam. The book of Balaam goes from Numbers 22.1 up to the end of Numbers 24. So it's a fairly lengthy section. And there's a certain passage within that section that we want to focus on as our first passage today. But first of all, some background. Who was this guy, Balaam? Well, Balaam was not an Israelite. In fact, Balaam was Mesopotamian in origin, and Balaam was a diviner or a sorcerer. In Numbers 22, the king of Moab, this guy named Balak, summoned the Mesopotamian sorcerer Balaam to come and pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. Why? Well, because Balak, king of Moab, was shaking in his boots. Israel, this numerous people group, was now camped in the Jordan Valley, just adjacent to Balak's Moabite territory, and Israel had just whooped the Amorites in battle. So Balak, king of Moab, was a little nervous here. He feared Israel, and he offered to pay Balaam handsomely if Balaam, the renowned sorcerer, would just come and curse Israel. Now, it's interesting. At first, Balaam refused to go because Yahweh had spoken to Balaam and had told Balaam not to go. But then the second time, if we read the narrative, the second time that Balak, king of Moab, sent his henchmen to Balaam, Balaam capitulated. Balaam ended up going, even though Yahweh was not pleased with that decision. Is that my mic? Maybe that's Maybe I just fixed it. No? Well, what follows after that in Numbers 22... snowing. (laughs) What follows in Numbers 22 is the rather humorous story, some of us may remember, of Balaam and his talking donkey. And then we get Numbers 23, where the Mesopotamian sorcerer Balaam utters his first oracle. And what happens is that Balaam, listen, Balaam can't curse Israel like Balak had wanted him to do. Instead, Balaam ends up speaking what Yahweh desires, which is nothing but blessing on Israel. Well, Balak, there's some humor in the story, Balak then thinks that perhaps a change of scenery will help Balaam uh, speak the desired curse over Israel. So Balak sort of shuttles Balaam around to various places for the second and for the third oracle, but again... In both of those instances, Balaam ends up blessing Israel instead of cursing them. So Balak just can't buy a curse 
literally, on Israel. Well, finally, friends, and this is where we want to really focus our attention, Balaam utters his fourth oracle in Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19. Keep in mind that our focus is the Messiah in Exodus through Ruth. Keep in mind that this fourth oracle, this fourth oracle of the non-Israelite pagan sorcerer Balaam happened centuries and centuries before Christ's appearance on the earth. Here, God used the mouth of a non-Israelite, heathen, diviner, to prophesy concerning the Messiah. It's amazing. And at this point, we are still hundreds of years away from the manger in Bethlehem. Let's read Numbers 24, 15 through 19 together. We'll actually pick it up at verse 14. Where Balaam says to King Balak, after Balak was sort of upset with Balaam, Balaam says, Now I am going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people, Israel, will do to your people, Moab, in days to come. Now note that last part of verse 14, in days to come. This alerts us to the fact that Balaam is about to utter a future-oriented prophecy. He says in verse 15, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High. Balaam, we might say, had knowledge from another plane, from another sphere. Namely, he had knowledge from the sphere of the Almighty in heaven. He continues in verse 16 by saying that he sees a vision from the Almighty and falls prostrate, having his eyes opened. And then verse 17, listen, Balaam says, Listen to what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Balaam sees some male figure, a him of some sort, but not now, not near. In other words, this male figure is out in the distance somewhere. He says, A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. The star and the scepter here are both associated with royalty. They are symbols of royal authority and royal Power, star and scepter. Balaam sees a male figure out in the future who is royal, who comes from Jacob's lineage. And at the end of verse 17, we have, don't we, the head-crushing motif 
that we talked about last Sunday. The star and scepter from Jacob, Balaam says, will crush the forehead of Moab. Now, friends, keep in mind here, Balaam, who is speaking this prophecy, had been hired by the king of Moab (laughs) to come and curse Israel. But here Balaam does the polar opposite of that. He predicts that Moab is the nation that's going to get its head crushed by the seed of the woman, by Israel, by a coming king from Israel. And then at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18, we have this royal figure of Israel breaking down the sons of Shet. We're not entirely sure who they were. But the royal figure of Israel also, notice, he leads Israel in conquering Edom and Seir. In other words, all those who oppose the seed of the woman Israel would be defeated and would be vanquished. Now, if you're familiar, if you're an Old Testament scholar, familiar with the Old Testament, you might read this and you might think, oh, well, the figure who's described here in Numbers 24 is David. After all, David descended from Jacob, did he not? Some centuries after Balaam's prophecy, David did end up crushing both Moab and Edom, as it says in 2 Samuel 8. David seems to fit the description of the figure that Balaam prophesies in Numbers 24. Indeed, he does. I think it's true that David was, listen, David was the initial fulfillment of this prophecy in Numbers 24. But we also have to bear in mind that the victories over the nations that David wrought were only temporary victories. Both Moab and Edom would later end up winning back their freedom after the time of David. And in Jeremiah 48 and 49, those are chapters that come late in Old Testament history, in Jeremiah 48 and 49, the prophet Jeremiah repeats, essentially, the prophecy of Balaam, Jeremiah says that the defeat of Moab and Edom was still a future thing to him, to the prophet Jeremiah. Indeed, some future king would have to emerge from Jacob's line to whom the nations would be subject. Some future king would have to come who would have authority over All peoples. As we continue here, keep that prophecy of Numbers 24 in your back pocket. Let's travel forward in our whirlwind tour to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the seed of the woman, the descendants of Jacob, are on the plains of Moab. They are renewing the covenant some 40 years or so after the covenant that God had made at Mount Sinai with Moses. So here they are in the plains of Moab, renewing the covenant. The people are still outside the land that was promised to them, but they are soon to enter the land. I want us to look at Deuteronomy 17 and 18 for a moment. Turn there, Deuteronomy 17 and 18. 
First of all, very briefly, again, this is a whirlwind tour, so stay with me. Very briefly, Deuteronomy 17.14 through 17.20 is the place where we have God's instruction for kingship in Israel. They're not even in the land yet, and God's giving them instructions for when they will have a king. In those verses, God stipulates that later on, once the people were in the land and they wanted a king to rule over them, that the king must be of the Lord's choosing, and the king over Israel must be an Israelite, And further, the king must not acquire a ton of bling or a fleet of Lexuses or numerous wives. And, says God, the king in Israel must read his Bible. That is, the king must immerse himself in the law of God all the days of his life. Deuteronomy 17 defines the kind of king that is to rule in Israel. And then in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, we have another passage that I want us to really focus on for a minute. Now Moses is speaking here, again, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. Moses is speaking here. He's actually preaching to the people of Israel. And Moses says, listen to what he says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. Moses is looking toward the future here and he says that God himself would do the raising up of a certain prophet who would be like Moses. And then down in verse 18, God is speaking. And God says to Moses there, verse 18, I will raise up for them, that is, I will raise up for the people of Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, And I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. So this passage of Deuteronomy prophesies, promises a prophet like Moses, who would emerge on the scene, future to the people who were gathered there on the plains of Moab. A prophet like Moses. Well, was it Isaiah, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel? Were were any of them the prophet like Moses? Or, Or was it Amos, or Hosea, or Haggai, or Malachi, or Micah? Were were any of them like Moses? Did any of them legislate God's law like Moses did? Did any of them mediate between God and people in the precise way that Moses did? Or did any of those prophets fulfill the priestly role that Moses did? 
Over in Numbers 12, verse 8, God says that with Moses, listen, with Moses, God spoke face to face, unlike other prophets who were spoken to in visions and dreams. So did Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of those other prophets experience that face-to-face, intimate conversation with God that Moses enjoyed. Now turn with me briefly to the very end of Deuteronomy. I'm going to let that question hang. The very end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34 and verse 10. Now, in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 34, we have record of the death of Moses. Notice that. Moses dies. Deuteronomy 34, 5. And then in verse 10, somebody, not Moses, wrote about the post-death legacy of Moses. Some final editor of Deuteronomy, maybe Ezra, wrote the words we find in Deuteronomy 34.10. Perhaps these words were written even way later, even during Israel's exile to Babylon. We can't be entirely sure, of course, but Deuteronomy 34.10 says to us that no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. If, friends, if these final words of Deuteronomy were indeed written way after Moses, say during the 587 exile to Babylon, then it means that there were a whole number of prophets who had come along in the history of Israel who were included in the no prophet has arisen like Moses category. To be a prophet like Moses automatically excluded the likes of Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Twelve, etc. Because again, after all, none of them spoke face to face with God in the same way that Moses did. And as Michael Rydelnik notes in his book, The Messianic Hope, he says this, in the history of the Old Testament period, no ordinary prophet exercised the legislative, executive, priestly, or mediatorial authority that Moses did. No, to be a prophet like Moses would require, wouldn't it, some utterly special individual. Some utterly unique individual. If that qualification, like Moses, was to be met. But God said, didn't he, in Deuteronomy 18, that a prophet like Moses would arise. Who is it? Well, we want to keep tracking through the Old Testament, but what have we seen so far today? Just to review quickly, in Numbers 24, in the prophecy of Balaam, we saw a royal figure in the distance who would arise from Jacob and to whom the nations would be subject. 
In Deuteronomy 18, we saw a special, unique prophet like Moses who would one day emerge on the scene. Someday, he would come. Could the figure described in Numbers 24 and the figure described in Deuteronomy 18 be the same person? Well, moving forward through Old Testament history, the book of Joshua is where the people enter the land that was promised to the seed of the woman. Joshua records great success in taking the land under the leadership of Joshua. For example, passages such as eleven sixteen through 23, and all of chapter 12, and chapter 21, verses 43 through 45, record in the book of Joshua great success for Israel in taking the land that was promised to their forefathers, but then mixed into the success stories, we also get these little notices sprinkled in here and there of unsuccessful attempts at trying to take certain parts of the land. For example, 1313 and 1563 and 1610 and 1711 through 12. We won't take time to read them, but there they are. Right near the end of the book, in Joshua 23, we get the distinct feeling, as the aged Joshua gave his farewell address to the leaders of Israel, we get the distinct feeling that Joshua believed that Israel in the land would end up disobeying God. In 23, verses 6 through 11... Joshua, we see him there urging Israel to obey God. And in 23, 12, and 13, Joshua warns Israel about the consequences of turning away from God. So all told then, friends, we need to understand that the book of Joshua gives this mixed picture of both success and unsuccess, and also the potential For trouble up ahead. Well, as the book of Judges opens, see, we're already out of Joshua. (laughs) As the book of Judges opens, very soon in the text, we get word that what Joshua had feared for Israel was now coming to pass. Judges 2, verses 10 through 13, records Israel in the land doing what? Doing evil. Forsaking God, serving false gods, provoking God to anger. And we get more of the same in Judges 2, verses 16 through 19, and 3, 7, and 3, 12, 4, 1, so on and so forth. God raises up judges in Israel who are not like judges that you, you and I know about. Rather, these people are military leaders who appear periodically in Israel to lead military deliverances when tribes get into trouble with enemies. Some of these military leader judges, such as Othniel and Gideon and others, are said to be empowered by the Spirit of God. They bring rest to the land, in some cases, 
But many of the judges, including Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, descend into moral sin. And it becomes quite clear as you read Judges that none of these people are going to be the royal scepter and star that Balaam had prophesied. In fact, there is that constant refrain in Judges at 17.6, and 21.25, constant refrain that in the days of the Judges, Israel had no king. That phrase gets repeated four times in Judges. You get the feeling that for the author of Judges, a monarchy in Israel, kings and kingship in Israel, would go a long way to solving the sordid national problems that plagued Israel in the time of the Judges. Well, enter the book of Ruth. The first verse of Ruth tells us clearly that the book is set in the time period of the Judges. But where Judges had been a dark book, Judges is a book that tells the rather depressing story of the downward spiral of Israel's moral life as new residents of the land of Canaan. Where that's the case with Judges, the book of Ruth is much more upbeat and much more happy. The little book of Ruth tells us that heartwarming, romantic story of Boaz and Ruth. Some of us know it well. And it highlights, the book does, the upstanding, godly character of this couple. But for our purposes this morning, what I really want us to focus on are not the details of Boaz and Ruth as much, but rather, I want us to see what I really think is one of the main points of the book of Ruth, aside from Boaz and Ruth and the kinsman-redeemer stuff, which deserves whole other sermons. To see this, let's go back to Judges for just for a moment. Look with me at Judges 17.7. And note the phrase there, Bethlehem in Judah. The same phrase gets repeated in 17.9, and again in 19.1, and 19.2, twice in 19.18. Bethlehem in Judah. So notice this, toward the end of Judges, Bethlehem in Judah gets mentioned multiple times. And then guess what? Over in Ruth, in the first two verses of the book, the phrase Bethlehem in Judah is written twice there. It's like the writer of Judges and the writer of Ruth wants to situate us in Bethlehem of Judah for some reason. Why? Well, to find out, let's go to the end of Ruth, to chapter 4 and verse 17. Finally, after Boaz and Ruth are married, they have a child. The child's name is Obed. Parents, if you're having a child, it's not the greatest name. The child's name is Obed. Obed ends up fathering Jesse, and Jesse fathers, wait for it, David. 
The name David is like fireworks going off in the text at the end of the book of Ruth. Part of the whole point of the book of Ruth is to show us that God's amazing providence in bringing together Boaz and Ruth eventually produced the greatest Old Testament king that Israel ever had, David. And David, we know, was from where? Bethlehem in Judah. And David was anointed where? In Bethlehem of Judah to be king. The latter chapters of Judges are especially pro-Bethlehem, if we read them carefully, pro-Judah. And Ruth opens in Bethlehem. Why? Because this is where David comes from. The book of Ruth has been called, I think accurately, the birth narrative of David. David gets an entire book (laughs) devoted to his birth narrative because he's such a massively important king. Now zero in with me on Ruth 4, verses 18 through 22, just for a moment. We're tying together strands from the Old Testament to see the Messiah here. The author of Ruth gives us this little genealogy at the close of the book, and it starts with, notice, Perez. Who was Perez? If we remember from last week, Perez, according to Genesis 38, 29, was a product of Judah and his relations with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So we know that with Perez, here in Ruth 4.12 and 4.18, We're dealing with the lineage of Judah. From this lineage of Judah and Perez comes Boaz, comes David, and from the same lineage of Judah comes the one we are gathered to worship this morning, the crucified, risen, ascended, and soon coming Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've taken our whirlwind tour this morning, as far as I wanted to get, from Exodus through Ruth. We've highlighted, uh, highlighted a few places along the way where the dimmer switch that we talked about last week is turned up progressively. Increasing light is cast on the Messiah that the Old Testament identifies and predicts and describes. What did we see today? We saw in Numbers 24... That the Messiah would be a kingly Israelite figure. Someone to whom the nations of the earth would one day bow. And in Deuteronomy 18, we found another description there, did we not, of the Messiah figure. It must be the coming Messiah who is the prophet like Moses. Since no other prophet in the history of Israel fit the bill. And then in Joshua, we saw that the conquest of the land, while somewhat complete, it needed a more complete conquest to happen one day. Perhaps by some new Joshua who would come and finally, totally conquer the enemies of God's people. In Judges, we found that while some of the leaders there showed some promise... Ultimately, all of them failed. As Ray Dillard and Tremper Longman say in their Old Testament introduction, 
Judges shows us that we need a true champion to fight our battles for us. One raised up by God and invested with his spirit in full measure. Some leader to come and secure for us the inheritance that God has promised. Would there be such a champion, such a warrior one day? And then finally, Ruth. We read Ruth to the end. We wondered, is David in the lineage of Judah the one who was promised back in Genesis? Do we close our Bibles with the story of David? Did David crush the serpent's head fully and finally? Did David have final, lasting success in having the nations obey him? Was it David, the murderer, adulterer, and horrendous dad, who is the completion and fulfillment of Judah's prophecy in Genesis 49? Well, as we close, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Can I do that? Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Balaam's star and scepter prophecy. Jesus is called bright morning star in Revelation twenty two sixteen, And a star figures in large to his birth narrative. Jesus is the king of kings who holds the royal scepter of eternal royal power over all nations. Jesus, you see, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth as king. To Jesus, every knee in every people group and nation will one day bow either willingly or unwillingly. When Balaam said in Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Who was it he was seeing off in the distance? He was seeing Jesus. And Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses would one day arise. What do the people say Right after Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. The people witness that miracle and they say, John 6, 14. Surely this is the prophet. Deuteronomy 18 prophet who is to come into the world. I mean, look at him. He's doing public miracles like Moses did. What do the people say after they are mesmerized by the speech of Jesus in John 7? In John 7, 40, they say again, Surely this man is the prophet. 
Jesus is, friends, indeed the prophet like Moses, a fact that both Peter in his Acts 3 sermon and Stephen in his Acts 7 speech confirm. The Gospel writer Matthew goes out of his way to present Jesus as the new Moses. Jesus comes out of Egypt in Matthew 2.21, just as Moses had come out of Egypt. Then in Matthew 3, Jesus goes through his baptism, that is, he goes through death waters, through his Red Sea, just as Moses had done. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted with food in the desert, just as Moses and the people had been tempted with food in the desert after they left Egypt. In Matthew 5, Jesus goes up a mountain to deliver the law, to deliver the Sermon on the Mount, paralleling, of course, Moses at Mount Sinai. Jesus is the new Moses. He is the prophet like Moses. But more than that, friends, let's go further. Jesus surpasses the prophet Moses. Yes, Jesus is greater than the greatest Old Testament prophet there ever was. Hebrews 3.3 tells us, doesn't it, that Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Why? Well, for one thing, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, according to Colossians 1.19. Could that ever be said of Moses? No. In Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, according to Colossians 2.9. Jesus is God in the flesh, friends. Jesus is the God who gave the law to Moses in Exodus. And according to Jude 1.5, it was Jesus who led the people out of Egypt at the Exodus. We need to see today, we're just exalting in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came on that first Christmas. We need to see that Jesus is far greater than Moses. Jesus comes and he leads a greater Exodus than Moses ever did. Jesus comes to earth in the first advent, and Jesus releases slaves, not from Egypt, but from sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus is greater than Joshua. Jesus is the true warrior king who leads a new, completely, utterly victorious conquest. Not over Canaanite peoples, but over sin, death, and the devil. Jesus routes those enemies by his cross and resurrection and secures for his people an eternal inheritance. And Jesus is greater than any of the judges of Old Testament history. On Jesus, the Spirit descends like a dove and rests on him. Jesus is the Spirit-filled champion... The one who fights for his people, he's fighting for you today, and gains ultimate eternal victory. And Jesus is greater than David, whose birth is memorialized in Ruth. You see, unlike David, Jesus never sinned. 
Unlike David, the victory won by Jesus was eternally lasting. Amen? And the sons and daughters of the king, Jesus, unlike the sons and daughters of King David, are forever prized by Jesus, loved by Jesus, taken care of, nurtured, never neglected. Jesus, unlike David, is the one who comes to secure the final victory over the serpent and all those who follow him. Jesus, friends, is much greater than David. And so the dimmer switch, the light on the identity of the Messiah Jesus in Genesis through Ruth has been turning up ever higher, has it not? Our Messiah, our Lord, the one we celebrate during this Advent season is, so far we've seen, the seed of the woman who comes to crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the king in the line of David, the star and scepter of Jacob, the prophet like Moses, the warrior of the conquest who has come and is coming again. My prayer for you this week is that no matter what you encounter, no matter what you face this week, my prayer for you is that the glory and the hope and the sure victory of Jesus Christ will see you through. Focus your heart and your mind and your eyes on the mighty Jesus of the scriptures and be blessed and encouraged. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for our King, for Jesus Christ who came into such humble, lowly conditions, but who now has been given authority all authority in heaven and earth, who is there with you at your right hand right now, waiting for you to give word to come back and gather us, your children, home. We pray, Lord, for each of us this week that the hope of the gospel and Jesus would go with us in a very real and very tangible way, no matter what it is we experience. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the God who sought you when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, who interposed his precious blood to rescue you from danger, give you voices to praise him, for to sing his praises is good, pleasant, and becoming. Amen.